according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. You may turn to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to get rather used to Matthew chapter 12 over the next few weeks. Not only has it been our text for episode 24, along with Mark 3 and Luke 11, it will continue to be our text uh, for episode 25, Jesus answers the demand for a sign, as well as event number 26, where uh, his mother and his brothers seek an audience. And that takes us down through the end of chapter 12 and uh, will prepare us for the kingdom of heaven parables in Matthew 13, which is episode number 27. So we'll be here in this text for quite some time, and then uh, we'll be in the 52 verses of Matthew 13. As you might imagine, we're going to have to cover the kingdom of heaven parables there, and I'm looking forward to that because there is so much confusion over the kingdom of heaven parables with respect to who they're designed for, when they're applied, and when they're fulfilled. And uh, hopefully we'll be very clear on the fact that we're still in the Old Testament. The Gospels are, uh, communicate, the Gospels are written in the New Testament, but they're communicating events that took place in the Old Testament and that uh, the church is still a mystery, not yet in existence until Acts chapter 2. If we keep those things in our mind, then hopefully these other matters will straighten out. All right, we are near the end of this episode, Jesus Accused of Blasphemy. We left off last week with the attribution of satanic power in terms of the unpardonable sin. And we spent a whole session on point 7 all by itself, the unpardonable sin. Today we're going to move on to point 8 and uh, wrap up this episode. Before we do, though, let's take time for silent prayer. Make sure that each one of us is equipped with the Holy Spirit. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do humble ourselves under the authority of your word, recognizing our, uh, unmerit, our unmerited favor that you've poured out upon us. We don't deserve to be here, Father. We haven't earned the right to, uh, to understand your thinking. But Father, by grace, you have placed us in your Son. You have, in kindness, revealed yourself to us. And you have so graciously allowed us to have eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. So on this day, Father, we've made the decision to be here. We thank you for that. We ask for uh, concentration, for distractions to be set aside. And, and hedge us about, Father. Protect us. This, lately, we've had an increase in the, the strangers wandering through here looking for things. And Father, I just pray for a, an undistracted study today. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. I haven't made sure the ringer was turned off this morning. We might be telephoning. I never did find out who was calling. Doesn't matter. All right. Point eight. We're ready now to tackle the last part of this section. The, uh, the heading on this, by the way, is uh, Jesus accused of blasphemy. And the text is Matthew 12, 22 through 37. The parallel coming in Mark 3, 20 through 30, as well as Luke 11, 14 through 23. But Matthew is the longest account. And when it comes to these last verses, verses 33 through 37, we're dealing with material that's not in the Mark and Luke parallel. So in verses 33 through 37, we're dealing with material that's not in the Mark and Luke parallel. Although, that being said, you can find... Uh, the content of these verses in different places in the Gospel of Luke. And hopefully we're clear on that. I, I've, I've been a little fuzzy maybe in some of the ways that we've described parallels uh, and the nature of the synoptic Gospels. 
this is a, a great place to illustrate it because we've got an incident where he's accused of blasphemy, where he's accused of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul. And that's recorded in Matthew chapter 12, Mark chapter 3, and Luke uh, chapter 11. So we say, okay, those are in parallel with one another. And that's true uh, in terms of the episode is concerned. Now, there might be individual verses, though, that are not contained in that parallel text. Does that make sense? So that as we read here in Matthew 12, uh, 33 through 37, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit uh, and, and the verses that follow. Now, those verses are not contained in the, the parallel account of Mark or the parallel account of Luke. However, Luke does record some of these verses elsewhere in other spots of Luke, but just not the spot in Luke that's the parallel to this incident. Does that make sense? All right. And this is part of why when we put these things together in a synoptic study, we realize that this is not the only time that, he, that Jesus ever delivered the sermon. It's not the only time he ever gave this message. He probably gave this message unknown number of times at various incidents, at various episodes of his ministry. And it just so happens that Matthew records these words in this incident and Luke records these words in a separate incident, whereas he gave the message in both places and likely in many other places beyond that that were left unrecorded. All right, now the eighth point of study and the final point of study from this episode, the Lord concluded his message to the Pharisees with a, re with a repeat of a message that he gave to conclude the Sermon on the Mount. The fact that he's repeating himself demonstrates the urgency, demonstrates the importance, and also demonstrates the, uh, the non-reception on the part of these Pharisees that, that had they paid attention the first time, if they would have believed the first time, then this warning would not have been needed to be given again. This is a gospel message in many respects where the, the, the message of being has to precede doing that these Pharisees will never produce righteousness because they themselves are not righteous. They're not born again. They're not redeemed. That all they are are bad trees and they're going to continue to put forth bad fruit even though they, in their mind, they're doing great things for Yahweh. The reality is they're not. They are unregenerate. They are bad trees. They're producing bad fruit. And so because they, they failed to gather that message earlier, they're getting that message again. And there's nothing wrong with giving the gospel 10 times, 20 times, 100 times to an unbelieving audience. Now, if you're dealing with a believing audience, then that can be um, discouraging. I know in my parents, for example, years and years ago in the early 70s, uh, they got tired of attending a, a church. They were in a Baptist church at the time. And Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, all they kept hearing was how to get saved and how to get saved, and how to get saved. And, and you know, it gets to the point where you say, okay, I, I'm saved, what, what happens next? You know, and, and that oftentimes can be the prompt or the go that tells believers, you know what, we need to, we, we're looking for teaching. We want to get something beyond gospel information. We want to grow. And uh, anyway, that's how my parents found teaching, and I'm very thankful that they did. So this, uh, this message is a repeat, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, it, and we'll compare this to the Sermon on the Mount shortly. We'll see the parallel with Matthew chapter 7. But this, this ought to be at least familiar to us, the fact that good trees bear good fruit and bad trees bear bad fruit. Let's read through it. Verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. 
But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. Remember the, the passage before this was dealing with the blasphemy, the, the evil words where they were accusing him of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. So every careless people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now this forms now the conclusion to this message, even as a similar message was the conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. I hope we understand first of all, and well, let's get five things under this, that under A, the metaphor of trees and fruit emphasize being over doing. The metaphor of trees and fruit place the emphasis on being over doing. That's where the emphasis or the emphasis is or the emphasis is. The emphasis, emphasis, emphasis is on being rather than doing. Why, as a grace ministry, we teach the Word of God, we allow the Word of God to transform thinking. That then changes your being. That if you are not conformed to this world, but rather you are transformed by the renewing of your mind, what does that mean? You've been transformed. Your being has been altered. And because your being has been altered, you're now a new being, a being that is more Christ-like than it was yesterday, a being that's becoming more Christ-like with each passing day of growth, your being is changed. And then your doing reflects that. We can be really relaxed and not plunge into realms of legalism all worked up about what people might be doing or not doing or how they're doing it. And rather than, than being oriented on the, the particular behavior and so wrapped up in are you, are you dancing or drinking or, or smoking or, or what are you doing, we're much more concerned with being, teaching the Word of God, allowing the Word of God to work in and through you, allowing God the Father to accomplish His good pleasure. See, and then the doing, uh, the doing follows. Because a good tree cannot produce bad fruit. Neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. And uh, so often the, the moral reform efforts that are made are, are simply trying to uh, put, you know, you can dress up a pig, but what do you got at the end? You got a dressed up pig. All right. This was the emphasis in Matthew chapter 7 as the Sermon on the Mount was concluded, verses 16 and following. Where the warning comes in verse 15, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So, there again, with being versus doing, what, their being hasn't changed. Their being, they're still wolves. They might be dressed in sheep's clothing, but their nature, their being, they're still wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from bushes, nor fig, uh, figs from thistles are they. So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears Bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 20, so then you will know them by their fruits. All right, so this is our passage as we deal with this. It's about being rather than doing. And, and churches that are all worked up over 
uh, the, the things that people do, all concerned about whether you're playing cards on a Friday night or you're dancing or any, you know, things like that. They, they make their long list of rules that, you know, the, your hair has to be long enough if you're a lady or you have to be wearing, uh, you can't be wearing pants. You gotta be wearing a dress. And we've got the, uh, you know, the fashion police at the door to make sure that, uh, that you're dressed appropriately according to our standards of legalism. See? All that's a bunch of hooey as far as I'm concerned because the scripture emphasizes being more so than doing. Now we are left with an interesting phrase as it says here, make the tree, because we have two options. And I don't know if you picked up on it, but in verse 33 it says, either, on the one hand, make the tree good and its fruit good, or, on the other hand, make the tree bad and its fruit bad. Those are your two options. And as Christ is laying it out here to these Pharisees, it's, it's obvious what camp they're already in. And yet they have the opportunity to make the tree good, so to speak, if they accept the gospel of Jesus Christ and become saved. Now, making the tree will have consequences. The consequence of making the tree alters the fruit that's then born. Again, it's being more so than doing. Interestingly enough, we're dealing, we're dealing with an aorist active imperative of poieo, the verb poieo. And probably the hardest part here, here's your verb, poieo. Now, it's an aorist. And those of you that are in our beginning Greek class understand the difference between an aorist imperative and a present imperative. A present imperative communicates the ongoing continuous action of whatever it is that's being commanded to be done. In an aorist imperative, we would say keep on doing something because it's a command that you're expected to fulfill over and over and over again or continuously or repeatedly. But an aorist imperative is a one-time command. An aorist we think of as a point, whereas you draw the present tense out with a line. An aorist is a point. And so this would be a one-time command. Because when you think about making the tree, if you're going to make the tree good, remember we're talking about a metaphor here, that's with reference to salvation. It's only by grace through faith that we can receive His righteousness. It's only by grace through faith that, that man who is not good can become good with His kind of goodness. So what other tense would this be in except for the aorist tense? You can only do this once. How many times can you get saved? You only get saved one time. Either make the tree good. All right? And so it is an aorist active imperative. It is an, it is an active voice, though, which is interesting because the subject of the verb is expected to accomplish the activity that's being commanded. You must do something, see, to be saved. And that is you must believe. We've, we've defined this for you many times. What must I do to be saved is a legitimate question. And it has a legitimate answer. But you have to answer it in two ways. Because on the one hand, to earn it, nothing. But to receive it, Believe, and you've got to be able to answer that in both in both fashions, or you're not going to give a biblical answer. If somebody wants to know what they must do to be saved, if they have in their thinking that they're trying to earn it, then the answer you have to give them is nothing. You cannot earn it. There's nothing you can do. Christ did it all. But if they don't have works in their thinking, if if all they want to know is the mechanics or the process or what it then becomes the mechanism by which the salvation is is received. Well then, what must I do to be saved? Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, both you and your household. 
So it is an act of imperative. There must be a human action that takes place. A decision must be made. Now, how do I make a tree? How do I make it bad? How do I make it bad? It's interesting because you're already born bad. Each one of us is born in Adam. We're already a bad tree by virtue of our uh, lost estate. But there is a way in which when you reject the gospel, you actually actively worsen the circumstance. So join me in Matthew. We're still in Matthew, but turn now to a later chapter, chapter 23. Matthew 23. Again, the audience here are the Pharisees. It's a, not a happy message. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites. There's one thing that is unacceptable in the Lord's sight is a bunch of hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. In other words, they were so wrapped up in the external deeds that they lost track of the spiritual reality. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. <laughs> Metaphor there to extremes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. They don't really care what's on the inside as long as the outside looks pretty. I mean, think about all the churches and religions where they don't really care what you do Monday through Saturday so long as you're here on Sunday, you're dressed nice, and the money's coming in. If the money's coming in, well then, live however you like. Anyway, it's, uh, it's uh, quite a rebuking passage. Let me back up now to verses 13 and 15. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. Now notice how they do this. Remember, they're the brood of vipers. They're the, the minions, the lackeys, the, the children of the devil. And this is what he does. He blinds the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ and believe. And so this is what his, his brood of vipers are doing here. You shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. If you are proclaiming a false gospel, not only are you not saved, but you are even hindering others. Stop to consider. I mean, look at the various gospels that various churches are proclaiming. The gospel of Rome, for example. Where you have to trust in the, the, uh, the, the church of Rome for the remission of your sins. Is that the Bible's gospel? Or is that Rome's gospel? And if that's the gospel is being proclaimed, are you not closing that door? Verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. You know, the, the, the effort they put in is extraordinary. In fact, they put evangelicals to shame. I think the cults do the same thing. I think the Mormons knock on more doors. The Jehovah's Witnesses put more miles on their shoe leather and knock on more doors than we do. Why is that? Notice how far they go. You travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, notice what happens. You make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. 
This is uh, what I believe the Lord has in mind when he says, make the tree good. I'm sorry, make the tree bad and its fruit bad. They are making the trees bad by virtue of their false issues that they're raising, by virtue of the legalism that they're enslaving these people in. And remember, legalism is a downhill slide. Legalism only gets worse because the only way to excel under a legalistic system of religion is what? To be more legalistic than the other guy. You know, if he goes this far, you've got to go this far. And then the guy after you has to go this far. And that's the only way. Because if you don't, then you're not measuring up to the standard where that bar has just been set by the ones that went before you. Oh, it's a horrible way to live. So thankful that our New Testament is grace-oriented rather than legalistic. It's, it's unbelievable. So making the tree will have consequences. I love the way that our Great Commission is centered on making Remember, we are commanded to make disciples. We're not commanded to give the gospel. That's part of it. But we're commanded to make disciples, emphasizing being over doing. And we have a privilege of uh, being a part of that process. Point C, the third thing we get out of this text. The brood of vipers, by their intrinsic evil nature, cannot produce any divine good. That's verse 34 of Matthew 12. The brood of vipers, by their intrinsic evil nature, cannot produce any divine good. Now, if we stay faithful to this text, if we stay faithful to these principles, we're going to be hated for it. Because the lie of multiculturalism and pluralism and all the evils that we're surrounded by will tell you that everything is basically good. Everything's acceptable. That's not what this verse says. Bad trees produce bad fruit. How can you, being evil, it says in verse 34, you brood of vipers, how can you, being, that's continuously in a state of being, by nature, they are intrinsically evil. So how can you speak what is good? They are incapable of producing any divine good. If you think about the difference between divine good and human good production, uh, how many individuals in this world today are all engaged in what they think is good works? But none of it is good. Because it's not coming from a good treasury. It's not coming from a regenerate, born-again believer in Jesus Christ, motivated by the love of God the Father, oriented to glorifying God the Son, and producing those works to further the kingdom of God. If it's coming from any other source, any other motivation, it's not good. Notice, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Their being is evil, so everything they do is evil, even if it has the appearance of good. See, you know, we get invited to do some kind of a, a, a social services thing with, with the Mormon church. Sorry. My Bible says, do not be unequally yoked. What hath uh, light in, in harmony with darkness or Christ with Belial? Say, oh, but, but can't we agree? I mean, uh, the, uh, we, we have these common issues. Say, you know, and, and the big one, uh, the huge one where everybody wants to crusade on it is the, is the, the anti-abortion deal with the, the pro-lifers and that. And the Mormons say, hey, look, we're, we're in agreement on this. 
Well, there might be an external agreement over some earthly matter, but we're not going to be bound with you and your and your God, your false God and your false idolatry religion. We're not. We have no part of that. There is no harmony, and if I'm to be unequally yoked with that, then I'm participating in your unfruitful deeds of darkness. The Scripture says we can't do that. So, um, yeah, this is not a popular message because the world today says pluralism is the way to go. Everything's fine. Everything has value. See, it's, it's the depth of that insanity is stunning. Particularly when they look at Islam and they say, oh, yes, yeah, a wonderful religion of peace. This beautiful religion that's been hijacked. No, it hasn't. It was never beautiful, not to begin with, not ever in its history. It's not been hijacked. Are there peaceful, pacifist Muslims? Well, sure, but we got Quakers too. We've got pacifist Christians. Does that say they're biblical? They just happen to be a pacifist fringe group. The, the, the peaceful Muslims are a pacifist fringe group. They're not faithful to their Quran. The ones that are faithful to their Quran are the ones that are killing the infidels. And there's nothing of value there. All right, Isaiah 64, 6, you ought to be familiar with that. It's a verse that shoots down every uh, legalist on earth as they're trying to do good things. And they have a righteousness. The problem is that it's a human righteousness. The human righteousness of relative humanity. Remember, um, well, verse 6, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. All our righteous deeds, whatever you do. If you're not regenerate, nothing you do is of any value. And even if you are regenerate, if you're out of fellowship, it's not of any value. To be a righteous deeds in God's sight, you must be born again, you must be in fellowship, walking in the light. Otherwise, it's as a filthy garment, and you've, if you've had Colonel Theme or any other pastors with doctrine, you understand that filthy garment there references the, the, uh, the, the monthly menstruation process there of, of, that, uh, of women. That uh, this, was, uh, this was their, their uh, menstrual rags. That's what God thinks about all your human righteousness. All of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. So these Pharisees that had the longest, most glorious prayers in the marketplace and they gave alms to the poor and they did all these other things to be seen by men and all of their righteousness was filthy in God's sight, absolutely rejected because they're evil trees. They're evil trees. Now when we talk about what comes forth out of your treasury in verse 35... The good man brings out, and the evil man brings out. I find it unfortunate that the choice of language there is so benign, it's so passive. The idea of bringing out is really rather weak because the language there is the language of casting out. It's the same language that he used when he cast out this demon. The Lord's work of casting out, this is point D. The Lord's work of casting out a demon was an illustration for what each one of us casts out. We're supposed to be in the casting out business. Not that we're casting out demons, but that we're casting out works of righteousness from a heart that's been made righteous. The fruit that we are bearing 
it says that it comes from within. It's, it's, a, it's a fruit that's produced from a good tree and we bring it out of our treasury or we actually we cast it out of our treasury. We expel it from our treasury. There ought to be a kind of a, a force behind it. Hmm. It's really rather vivid <laughs> in its uh, descriptive nature here. And the idea of... Uh, I'll never forget. Uh, you ever seen a baby with like projectile vomiting? I've got some moms here. They're, they're, they know, you know what I'm talking about. One of our four. Oh, man. Guinness Book of World Records. I'm talking distance and accuracy. Unbelievable. And, and in quantities beyond what you think. I mean, this baby's just a tiny little thing and you think the stomach can't be that big. But how is this stuff coming out? Okay, a little bit gross this morning, but that's all right. It is communicating what Ekbalo is truly dealing with. It's, it's the violent force with which something is cast out, thrown out. Ekbalo is the same language that we have when he casts out a demon. It's the same word. We ought to use the same terminology. That... Uh, that we deal with here. They say, well, he only casts out demons by the power of Beelzebub. So if, if the casting out of a demon is a violent, uh, obvious activity, well, then so too should be the casting forth of good fruit or good treasure from within a treasury of that person's being. Now, three things under this. First of all, the good man has a good treasury from which he casts out good things. The good man has a good treasury. And I'll give you the vocabulary on that here in a moment. But we, we need to start to realize that, that we have access to heavenly resources, to his treasures. He is the heir of all things. We ourselves are in possession of this treasury by virtue of his treasury that we can then produce these works. And it's, it's, it's infinite. Remember, in, God's, in, in man's way of looking at things, if I've got a finite amount and I give you some of it, then I have less. And so I might be jealous of what I have. I might be uh, protective. I might be chintzy or cheap. I might want to hold on as a, as a miser. I, I've got to hoard my own treasures because if I give you any of it uh, grudgingly or unwillingly, well, then I've got less now. And then I get jealous. Greedy. But in God's way of looking at things, you give and give and give again, and it is more blessed to give than to receive. And by having given, you actually have more, not less. Because what have you done? You've increased your capacity. Each, with each exercise of divine good, you've increased your capacity for more divine good. And so... The idea here is that we have a good treasury. I'm going to give you vocabulary on this here in a moment. But the, uh, I thought I had some Greek to put up here too, but I guess I don't. The, uh, but the language here is, is parallel. The evil man has an evil treasury from which he also casts out things. And everything he casts out is evil, even if it has the appearance of good. Can we not get confused between divine good and human good, which is ultimately evil? 
Because your dear Aunt Sadie, who's a very moral person, if she's not accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ, then she's an evil tree producing evil fruit, even if it appears to be very nice about the way she does it. And everything that comes out of her treasury is evil. It's the nature of it. The um, put this up here. We deal with verse thirty-five. I'll underline it for you here. All right, here's. Here's the good man, Agathos Anthropos. There's your good man. And he has a good treasury right there. Thesaru, I'll, I'll give you that vocabulary. It's where we get the English word thesaurus. You ever think of a thesaurus as a treasury? <laughs> Stephen Wright used to ask, what's another word for thesaurus? Right? I mean, isn't, isn't the thesaurus the book you go to to find what's another word for something? I mean, it's a treasury of words is what it is. It's a, it's a, and so the word thesaurus comes from the Greek for, for a treasury. And because it refers to the treasury, then by extension it can refer to the things that are kept within the treasury or the treasures themselves. But primarily it means treasury. So out of the treasury, the good man, out of the treasury, out of the good treasury, ek bale, these are cast out, agatha. You ever know anybody named Agatha? I never have. Someday before I die, I want to meet an Agatha. I've never met an Agatha. But Agatha, being a neuter plural, uh, meaning good things. Not just good, but good things. Neuter plural. So every Agathos, Anthropos, good man, out of his Agathos thesaurus, out of his good treasure, casts out good things. Casts out Agatha. Then there's the flip side, the paneros, for evil. Every paneros anthropos, every evil man, out of his paneros thesaurus. There's ectu paneru thesaru. He ekbale, it's the same verb, he's also casting out. The good man casts out, the bad man casts out. And it's the same language, ekbalo, that we have of Christ casting out demons. But he doesn't cast out agatha, he casts out ponera. Ponera. And so we have it there. If I had more time this morning, I'd color that all up for you. I've got coloring tools available now to, to make use of. All right? But the parallel, parallelism there is inescapable. And it is what it is, and it does what it does, and that's the nature of God's design. It's not going to change, even if our pluralistic modern philosophy wants it to. Everything is supposedly good in the world system. Not true. Good is good, evil is evil. And woe to those who call good evil and evil good. Dogs don't have kittens. Cats don't have puppies. This is the nature of what he's revealed. All right. Now the concept here of a treasury was previously taught, again, in the Sermon on the Mount. This message here has so much in common with the Sermon on the Mount. But the concept of a treasury was previously taught back in Matthew chapter 6. And we, but we taught it in terms of a storing up, laying up your treasures in heaven. Remember that from Matthew 6, 19 through 21? Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. 
See, earthly wealth is, it is what it is. It comes, it goes. Sometimes you make it, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you make more, sometimes you make less. Sometimes it's gone. The real issue is the spiritual wealth is produced. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moss nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. The heavenly economy is what we ought to be engaged in. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure or where your treasury is. You can use, it's the same word, thesaurus, for treasure or treasury. So where is it that you're stashing away your confidence? Here in this earth? All these Katrina memorials and things and looking a year back and all of this and people that are just devastated. They lost their homes. They lost their jobs. They lost their money. They lost all these earthly things. And what are they? Earthly things. Lay up treasures in heaven. There's no hurricanes in heaven. Your heavenly mansion, Christ has been preparing it now for 2,000 years. Hurricane can't destroy that. All right, when it comes to your other earthly needs... Well, his eyes on the sparrow, he'll take care of it. That's not the real point. So we've had the teaching already. The first time he talks about treasuries, he's talking about the uh, the storing up, the the laying up, the the stockpiling. But we don't just lay it up and store it up and stockpile it for the sake of being Ebenezer Scrooge and holding on to it. We want to store up a treasury so that we can do something with it. We want to cast it forth. We want to spend it. We want to be rich in good works, we're told. Not only in James, but also 1 Timothy. So this concept of treasures and treasuries was previously taught in terms of storing up. However, in this teaching, the treasures are cast out. In this teaching, the treasures are cast out. In your word studies, if you want to do it, we've got one verb and one... uh, one noun, thesarizo is your verb, and thesaros is your noun. That's T-H-E-S-A-U-R, thesar, and the verb ends with I-Z-O, and the noun ends with O-S. Thesarizo, thesaros. Thesarizo is the verb to store up treasures, to lay up treasures, to deposit treasures to gather a treasury, to build a treasury. And then thesaros refers to the treasury itself that you've accumulated or to the content of that treasury, that is the wealth that has been accumulated. But in this teaching, the treasures are cast out. If you think about how do you gather them, cast them out. How do you lay them up in heaven? Cast them out. Apply the word of God. Use doctrine in your life. By casting it out. The believer's proper orientation to treasure is a feature of our divine perspective in the Christian way of life. And this really becomes the core of the, uh, of the message here in terms of the treasures. The believer's proper orientation to treasure. We want to be oriented to treasure. By now you figured out we're not talking about earthly money. All right. <laughs> you know, this, this is not the kind of a ministry that attracts the, the earthly money. It's the kind of ministry that makes people mad. 
You know, if you want to attract the earthly money, you got to be a, a, a flatterer. You got to—I mean, there's ways to do it. There's marketing ways to do it. We want to be oriented to His treasure, to that which has eternal value. Whole string of scriptures here. I don't know how many we'll get through, but Matthew two eleven. The wise men show up and they open their treasuries to provide this babe in the house gold and frankincense and myrrh. Because ultimately speaking, those treasuries they opened up were not worthy to be compared with the king that was laying there before them and the true treasures that were then to be their eternal destiny. So they had that as a perspective in Matthew 2.11. Matthew 6.19-21 is the passage we just read where we're supposed to lay up our treasures in heaven. We make up that deposit in heaven. Matthew 12.35 is our text this morning where we cast our treasures out of our good heart. The good man cast forth good treasure out of his good heart. Matthew 13. We've got this coming up in the parables of the kingdom. Verses 44 and 52. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure, like a thesaurus, hidden in a field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The treasure of God's Word, the treasure of being born again in Jesus Christ with an eternal destiny, you cannot put a price on that in earthly terms. And it cannot be bought, which is why it's offered to all. From the richest to the poorest, it's a free gift. What a blessing. Verse 52 of the same chapter. Jesus said to them, Therefore every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Notice there again the desire to bring it out. To be generous with that treasury. What a delight. In Matthew 19.21 Another use of treasure. We want to be oriented to treasure. Because if you're caught up in the treasure of this earth, it's a barrier. Rich, rich young ruler couldn't figure that out. Man thought he'd earned his way to heaven. He'd done everything. You know, the Lord says, well, how are you doing here on your legalism? He says, well, I'm, I haven't murdered. I've honored my father and mother. I'm not, I haven't stolen anything. I'm doing great with the Ten Commandments. Matthew 19, verse 16, someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, What are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, I kept all these things. What am I still lacking? See, even if you're perfect in the realm of legalism, you know what? you still have this idea that I don't measure up. What else is there? How am I still lacking? How is it that I'm so perfect in my own legalism, but I'm still not there? I need something else. Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have a thesaurus. You will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. We've got to be oriented to treasures and where the true treasure is. 
All right. Those are the records in Matthew. There's an interesting one in, uh, there are parallel accounts to all those verses we just saw in both Mark and Luke. But the one I'll give you in Luke is in Luke 12:21. Not exactly a parallel, but Luke 12:21. And here's this rich man, and his land was very productive. He began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? In other words, he's got too much money, he doesn't know what to do with it. This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. Because in his worldly way of thinking, the only thing better than what he had is more of what he had. Because he wasn't content with what he had. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many good goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. So if you have enough, then you have no problems. Isn't that amazing? If you just have enough money, you have no more problems. I think we all know that's a bunch of garbage. But God said to him, You fool. This very night your soul is required. If you see, when God calls somebody a fool, you better pay attention to that. Because that could be you. It could be me. This very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? You've got this great building program. You built these wonderful barns. Who's going to get them now? You're gone. And what have you laid up in heaven? When you get to heaven, God's not going to care how big your barns were or how many car garage you have. See, I led one man to Christ by talking about number of cars in the garage. He was talking about this wonderful big old house that he built with four car with a four car garage. I said, "That's amazing." When you get to heaven, how, how many garages are you going to have there? Broke his heart. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. See, that's the contrast. Treasure for self. It's all about me. What do I have? But when you're oriented to others, when you're oriented to giving, and, and giving in terms of spiritual fruit, the gospel to those who are lost, encouragement to those who need encouragement, casting out your treasures, the treasures of the heart, then you're rich towards God. We've got to be oriented to that. Second Corinthians 4, 7. Grab the last of these. This is uh, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4. Even our very life is a treasure. And it says that we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Your soul is a treasure. And husbands need to figure out that the soul of their wife is a treasure that they're entrusted with. The souls of their children are treasures that they're entrusted with. And for the moment, for the time being, that treasure is in an earthen vessel. That's not the ultimate goal. There is a transplant coming up by which your soul and spirit will be taken out of the body of corruption and placed into a body of glory. But for the time being, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Why? Well, it's humility lessons. So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We learn not to depend on who we are or what we can do. See. You've got to depend on Him. It's all grace. All of it's grace. 
Colossians 2, 3 and Hebrews 11, 26 are the last ones. Colossians 2, 3. Hopefully this is helping us be oriented to treasure. There's a whole study we could do on it. I'm just giving you a handful of verses. But Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See, that's our treasure. Wisdom and knowledge. People that find Austin Bible Church find a treasury of wisdom and knowledge where the Word of God can be taught and they can walk out of here with rubies and diamonds and jewels just hanging out of their pockets, filthy rich, with the knowledge that comes in Christ. For in Him, and this is the, uh, the blessings we have, Paul says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face. Paul had never been to, to Colossae. And here he's writing a letter to them. Never been to Colossae, never been to Laodicea, but he's got a, his heart breaks for him. He wants to be with them. He wants to be able to bless them and to impart a gift to them that their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ Himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's what a Bible-teaching local church can do. Finally, Hebrews 11.26, the great hall of fame of faith. We quote this how many times? Because the example is Moses. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. For he was looking to the reward. We want to be properly oriented to treasure. That's a feature of our divine perspective. That's a feature of our Christian way of life. And it has nothing to do with earthly money. It has everything to do with the treasure of the wisdom that comes from His Word. Alright, I said we had five things in this text. We've covered four of them. Here's the fifth one. Words mean things. Words mean things. Matthew 12, 36-37. When we talk about what happens to the judgment seat of Christ, where we have gold, silver, and precious stones laid up on the one hand, we have wood, hay, and stubble laid up on the other hand, and we understand that that's the judgment of our works. But this passage makes very clear that it's not only the works in terms of overt activity, the things that we do, but our works also includes the verbal activity, the things that we say. And behind that, of course, is the thinking. Behind every action, behind every word, is a thought. Every, the thoughts and intentions of our heart are laid bare. That's why the Word of God is alive and powerful. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of joints and, and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The judgment seat of Christ, our heart is laid bare. And everything that we've said and everything that we've done is laid out there to either be purified and rewarded or to be burned up and done away with for all eternity. Either divine good production for glory or human good production that's absolutely worthless and destroyed. 
Now, these words, we're going to give an account. Every careless word, every um, empty word, useless word. Remember, we're supposed to be edifying one another. Your speech is to be seasoned with salt as with grace, that it might give grace to those who hear, that it might build up and edify. Isn't it amazing? And James teaches this, the book of James, that the tongue is dangerous. It's like a wildfire. And you can hurt people with a tongue so far as it goes, you're going to give an account. You're given accounting for it in the day of judgment. Every empty or careless word. And that gets convicting. I know I've said lots of careless, empty things. I've said thoughtless things, hurtful things. I've regretted it later. It, 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 you, you want to be able to snatch it back, but you can't because it's gone. The word's already gone forth. It's already hurt the person that hurt it. Can't be undone. You'll watch it go up in flames. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. We've got to stop to consider that the things we say are a reflection of the way we think and really what we are. Being precedes doing, as this whole context here keeps telling us. All right, three things under this. They externally manifest the internal reality. They externally manifest the internal reality. I thought our guest speaker Sunday night was great with the teenagers when he described the difference between, he didn't use the vocabulary we use, but he basically described the difference between inner beauty and outer beauty. You know, and there you can have, you know, there could be uh, boys and girls that are very attractive physically, outwardly, but what's in their heart? See, he didn't exactly use the vocabulary we use, but the concept was there. And there can be some very attractive women that can be very enticing, very seductive. And inwardly, they're the ugliest things you've ever ever pondered. Hunters of souls, Ezekiel calls them. They will be called into account at the final judgment. We'll have to give an answer. And I find that interesting because uh, 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5, they, they talk about the judgment seat of Christ. And it says, we shall give a word. We have to give a word about the words we gave here on earth. We have to give a final word as we give an account. And they form a standard for justification, temporal justification. How many different kinds of justification are there in Scripture? Lots. People get upset because they think this has something to do with salvation. This has nothing to do with salvation. Now, when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're saved, you are justified. And that is your eternal positional justification as a work of God on our behalf. That's not this. Neither is that the justification in the book of James when it says that uh, faith without works is dead. And Cliff Beveridge will be teaching us that on, on Sunday nights. There are any number of justifications in the Scripture. Obviously, the salvation one is the, the critical one, but this is another one that talks about a temporal life justification, that talks about how in the outworking of our faith, our works can be approved. And so we have the message here. But what comes, how, how, does this, how does this fruit become good fruit? By virtue of being a good tree. The being precedes the doing. All right. That wraps up our material on this. Which leaves us about three minutes early, but that's a good stopping point. We'll move on next week to these, these verses that follow now in Matthew chapter 12. 
uh, they want a sign. Some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And they just saw a sign. He cast out a demon. And they weren't happy with that. They said, Well, you only did that by the power of Beelzebub. They weren't happy with the sign he just did when he cast out a demon and he made the mute man start talking. So now they want a sign. And again, continuing on the theme from just uh, today, that uh, they are themselves being evil. An evil and an adulterous generation craves for a sign. And he says, you want a sign? You're going to get a sign. You're going to get the biggest sign in the world. It's the sign of Jonah, where he rises from the dead after three days. So we have that coming up. That'll be one week from today. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for this study. I thank you, Father, for believers that, that desire to hear the word of God, that desire to be built up in the faith and strengthened in the inner man. We ask for you to bless us as we go forth. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.